Good morning. Good morning. I know it's a sleepy, rainy day, but we get to celebrate the birth of Christ at the end of October. What a joy. Let me, uh, let me pray for us in preparation. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ has come and we thank you that because he died and rose again and ascended, he will come again, just as he promised. Ready us, God, for the good news of great joy of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, in the beginning, there was God. God forever joyful, happy in himself. Enjoying Himself from forever. The Father forever delighting in the Son. The Son forever delighting in uh, the Father. The Spirit forever delighting in the Son. On and on and on. From forever enjoying themselves. So much so that like a fountain they spilled over into creation. And their joy brought them to create. And so therefore that led to in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and the land, the sun, the moon, the stars. He made plants. He made flowers like lilies and roses. He made trees like apple trees and cherry trees and oak trees and maple trees. And he made things like uh, holly bushes and boxwoods. And he made the sea and he made all kinds of things to live in that sea. And so he made red snapper and whale and clownfish uh, And he made things like plankton and coral reefs in and amongst that sea. And then he made things to live on the land. He made dogs. Uh, He made horses. He made ants. And for some strange reason, he made cats. Uh, (laughs) And he made things to fly. He made things to fly. He made things like pelicans and parakeets and all these toucan birds, these parrots, the birds like this to fly over... The sky. And of course, he made mankind unique, beautiful in creation. Because mankind was created unique in that he could know God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. He has the ability, unlike a dog, to know God. And therefore, he then, because he has that responsibility, that ability, he then has the joyful responsibility to display him to the world. And God gave him that command to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth with worshipers of God that display how great he is, that speak to the joy that God has in himself. And the first of those was Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were married, and they were told to enjoy the garden, to be fruitful, to work it, to multiply. And they did that, but they were told to enjoy all the land except One tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to not eat of that one. And the joy of God was checked on the day that Adam and Eve ate of that tree. In other words, they did not love God on that day. And as a result of doing what God commanded them not to do, mankind was separated from His creation. Separated from God, I should say. Mankind was separated from God. And so therefore, sin, death entered into the world. Dissension, rivalries, racism. Sexual and physical and emotional abuse enter into the world. Murder. All kinds of other darkness enter into the world. But God's joy still spilled over. It couldn't stop. Because it has never stopped. He would still have peace and joy in the world. And so therefore He promised to destroy sin, Satan, and death. 
He used a man by the name of Abraham who was married to a woman that was barren by the name of Sarah and God to show off, to show his might, his great, his power. They then birthed a son and that son married another woman that was also barren just to show again how great and powerful God is. And they have twins, the younger of whom is Jacob. The promise goes through him. He has not one, not two, not even ten, but twelve sons. And those twelve sons became the twelve tribes of Israel, which enumerated so vast, so big, that the nation of Egypt tried to enslave them, or did enslave them. And yet God's joy continued to be worked amongst them. So much so that He delivered them from slavery in Egypt into a land of promise, wherein they had everything that they needed. They had wells that they did not dig, houses that they did not build. They had clothes, they had friends, they had each other. And most of all, they had the presence of God amongst them to enjoy them, to enjoy God, to enjoy each other. They had the law, they had God's word there with them. God promised to raise up a kind of prophet king from among them that would go and bring in the full display of God's glory to again eradicate that sin, that death that was even dwelling amongst them. But like all those before them, Israel, God's people, they did not obey the Lord. And so God raised up another man by the name of David, and he made a promise to him. And he said that of his line, there would be kings that would reign forever, a king in particular that would live forever. And that particular king would be born in the same city that David was born, in the city of Bethlehem. God, again, working out his joy to bring peace and joy to the earth. He said through his line it would come. He would be born of a virgin in the city of David. And the prophets spoke of him. And all the great people of old, they waited upon him. There would be this forerunner, it was even told to them, that would go and prepare the way for him. And decade after decade, century after century, they waited for all of these promises to come together. For all of this peace and joy to break in. The peace and joy of God healing on the earth. And so decade after decade, century after century, waited for this great hope until some 400 years go by. 400 years where there's no voice from God, no prophet from God. Plenty, I'm sure, wondered if God had forgotten them. When one night, some 2,000 years ago, in a town that you can fly to today, God broke in, fulfilling all of His promises. In Luke chapter 2, it was said, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was his child who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here it is. All of God's promises coming to fruition. So uh, Luke here, the good historian that he is, he gives us precise timing as to when this happened. It happened in the days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all of these things, by the way, historians today have documented all of these things were happening just as Luke said it was. He's a very good historian, which tells us that this, friends, is no fable. This is no myth. This is true history. This is history. These these events, as one pastor has said, did not happen in Narnia. They did not happen in Middle Earth, nor did they happen in a galaxy far, far away. This is truth. This is history. These things happened. 
This is no legend. This is the story of the world. This is truth. And the truth is, God was invading the world. He was making good on His promises. Mankind had proven that he could not work his way to God, and so therefore God was working his way to man. And he quite literally ordered the events of the world to get, by the work of his providence, to get these otherwise ordinary people into an otherwise ordinary town, Joseph and Mary. We can imagine how uncomfortable it was for the precious Mary, some nine months pregnant, to make the 85-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I doubt anyone took notice of them along the way. So much so that I, it doesn't appear as though even when they came into Bethlehem, anybody took notice of them. They couldn't even find a room in the inn, the text tells us. God is ordering kings, but He didn't even order a room at the Motel 6 for them. They're not noticed, they're not even recognized, but the Lord was doing all kinds of things, and so instead, because there's no place for the inn, they take up residence in what was probably a kind of hole in the side of a hill, something akin to a barn. The home for animals. That's where they go when they come into Bethlehem. So that upon the child's birth, he's laid in a manger. A manger, friends, is a feeding trough for animals. I made fun of a Christmas song a couple weeks ago, but I should venerate this one. This is such a strange way to save the world. God does not deliver the Prince of Peace through kings or queens, but through a couple unheralded farmers unknown by the world. Jesus is not born in a palace, but in the home of animals. He's not born in, the, in one of the great cities of the world, but instead in, in a town some six miles south of Jerusalem, in the city of David, of Bethlehem. Exactly, by the way, as it was prophesied hundreds of years before. And by the way, I notice at least three promises that are fulfilled in these seven verses alone. God was on the move to save the world, and probably no one in Jerusalem and no one in Bethlehem was even aware of it. Just think about that. Beloved, be, a, be, be careful in ascribing what God is or is not doing in the world. More than likely, God is doing 10,000 things and very few of them have anything to do with the power structures that we pay so much attention to. This story gives us evidence of that. God so often is lurking in the shadows. He is working amongst the poor, amongst the weak, amongst the insignificant, amongst the humble to shame the strong. But here, Christ has invaded the world. The Savior has finally come. And because He did, peace and joy we see are now possible. God, forever joyful in Himself, is breaking in. So let's see how this peace and this joy breaks in. Take a look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now friends, this, these events that we're reading about here are undeniably uh, seen to change the world. It is undeniable. The very timelines of history are dated by the events that we're reading here. And the reason why is because Jesus changed the world. That is an undeniable fact. Jesus changed the world. And He changed the world because He is the answer to God's everlasting joy in Himself and for His people. And so let's consider then that great joy and that great peace. Let's then consider who's part of that great joy and peace and then what it looks like. First question. What is the great joy? What is the great peace? Well, the clear and obvious answer to this question is Jesus. Just outside that small community of Bethlehem, there were some shepherds we read, and there in those desolate fields, the glory of God broke in. Now just try and imagine doing as you had done a thousand times before as a shepherd, tending to the sheep by night, maybe nodding off as the sheep are nibbling down on the ground, where suddenly an angel of the Lord visits you. And the glory, that is the weight and the wonder of the Lord, shone around you and your peers. Verse 10 and 11, I bring you good news of great joy. So that word good news, same word we get our word gospel. I bring you gospel. That word great there, same where, same place we get our word mega. I bring you gospel of mega joy. That will be for all the people. For, here comes the reason for the joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the good news of great joy is for the birth of a Savior, Jesus. The great joy of our world is that a Savior has come and this Savior's name is Savior. It is Jesus. So friends, you should know that there is no toy, no trip, no happy tear that can rival the all-encompassing joy of the gift of Jesus Christ as Savior, as Christ, as Lord invading the earth. No better gift. No better gift. So notice these three titles, even as we mention that. Notice the three titles of Jesus in the announcement. Did you see them? Did you note them? They're important to helping us understand the great joy and the peace. So the child that was born to Mary, we see there in that passage, he says first he's Savior. And we, we saw from Matthew 1, 21, a couple of weeks ago, Savior meaning he's saving us from our sins. That's what Jesus means. Savior. And he's Christ. That is Messiah, anointed, like an anointed priest or an anointed king. That is to say, he is the answer to all of God's promises that are showing up. And then finally, he's the Lord, coupled with a proclamation of the glory of God. The clear understanding of this passage here, of this notion of Lord, is that this is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of mega joy for unto you is born in this day a Savior, Messiah, God in the flesh. And notice that Jesus is these things. So you want to circle that word is. He is these things. Uh, Jesus is not, friends, an elected king and Lord. He's not. He simply is these things. Jesus did not become Christ and Lord. He is and always has been Christ the Lord. And His coming as a Savior results in this mega joy. Because, friends, you and I need saving. We need saving. The entirety of the Old Testament reveals that. The entirety of our personal experience reveals that, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. The Old Testament. These guys are given every single blessing 
that they could have ever been given, and yet they still don't get it right. And our own experience, my own experience, finds it to be the same way. No matter how hard I try, I cannot work my way to the holiness of God. I fail too often. And I know you do the same. So in the same way, no matter how hard we might try to be there, we can never measure up revealing that if great joy is going to come to the earth, it won't come, it can't come from God without God coming to us. God is going to have to be the one that comes to us. It can't come from us. God is going to have to come himself by his mercy. And so God knows that. And so he draws near. That's why this is mega joy. God coming to visit us because he knows that we cannot work our way to him. And so the saving we need is provided in the coming of Jesus. And so I wonder, friends, on this late October day, do you know this mega joy of Jesus? Do you join in the joy of the angels as they sing? And is that joy tied to what Christ has done? Is it? Where are you at on that? Now, there are some in the room that would say, yes, right? Hallelujah, I am joyful because Christ has come. But then there are others who say, I mean, yeah, sort of, largely, kind of joyful that Jesus has come, right? That's probably a lot of us in the room. And I wonder why that is. Why is it we have trouble identifying with the joy of the angels, even the joy of the shepherds, as we'll see? Why is that? Perhaps it's partly because this story is so familiar to so many of us. It's lost its novelty. Like children that have grown up around gold, we've forgotten what it's like to be impoverished. But even that fact alone, the fact that it could lose its luster, even that leads us into a deeper understanding of why our joy is in, in Jesus is lacking. That leads us into a deeper. Let me try and illustrate. If you were to go around CVS or one of the other 30,000 you know, uh, drugstores, you go walk by them, you'll see they're offering a flu vaccine. Get your flu vaccine. Right? Flu vaccines, we, we know at one point, not too long ago, these are considered major medical breakthroughs. Get a little bit of the sickness so that you won't get sick. And the millions agree this is good news, right? Many that get those flu shots, notice I didn't say all, but many that get them, they don't get the sickness, right? But the reason why flu vaccinations are not sweeping our country with excitement and great joy is because the flu, while sometimes life-threatening, is seen more often by us an uncomfortable inconvenience. If you found out that you had a flu tomorrow, you would probably not call for any all-night prayer vigils. But if we discovered a kind of vaccination for cancer, there would be national headlines in every paper. There would be dancing in the streets. Why? What's the difference? Well, the difference is, friends, is one sickness is much more serious than the other. The reason why your spirit may not agree with the angels that in the coming of Christ there is great joy is because you see his saving more like a flu vaccine than you do a cancer vaccine. It's good. Your sin sickness, though, is not all that bad. Therefore, the coming of Jesus is good, but it's not great. And so could it be that the joy that some of you are lacking is not only because the message is so familiar, but isn't it because you don't think that you're in that much trouble? You agree that we as human beings are sinful, we're sick, but 
you see your sin or our sin more like the flu, less like cancer. We need to be healed. We need to be restored. But there are worse problems than our sin. Well, friend, you need to know that you cannot, you will not enter into the mega joy of Jesus' coming until you see the desperation of your situation. You won't enter into it until you understand that. If Jesus is nothing more than a flu vaccine, then your joy in Jesus as Savior will never rise above the thought of His saving you from a minor sickness. But if you see the predicament that we find ourselves in as so utterly desperate that it demanded the second person of the Trinity to come and rescue us, then you will understand the mega joy that these angels have that we ought to have. And so by slowing down and reading the story, we can see that the saving operation of Jesus was tantamount to the gravest of situations. In fact, John Piper says that Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. The fact that we not only needed a Savior, but we needed this Savior, that we needed the Son of the Most High God, that in His coming it is met with this peeling back of heaven wherein we can see and hear the exaltation of a thousand angels. That tells us that our situation is far worse than we realize. That's the bad news. But the good news is, is God has made provision for it in His Son by sending Him to us. And so if you are struggling to either discover or dwell within the good news of the great joy of Jesus, friend, listen and look into the skies and hear the heavenly angels sing. Look into the manger. See what it took to save you. Then you will begin to see how desperate a situation we are. And then you will begin to realize the great joy of Jesus and His coming. And you will find that peace. And so since we're there, let's go ahead and answer that second question. Who did Jesus come for? The great joy we find is Jesus. We find peace in Jesus. That's the great joy. But who did He come for? Who did this Savior come for? I'm going to do a little exercise with you guys. So I'm going to, ask, I'm going to tell you to do something you should never listen to me do on other occasions. And that is don't look at your Bibles. All right, just look at me for a second. Finish this sentence. Finish this sentence while looking at me. It's not easy, but just stare at me for a second. All right. Finish this sentence in your minds. All right. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for who? Fill in the sentence. Keep it in your mind. For who? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for who? Now do the same thing with the following sentence. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to who? Fill in the sentence. You got it in your mind? Don't look down. Look down now. If you completed the first sentence with all people, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people, then you'll notice, at least in the ESV, which gets the Greek right, that's not quite right. It's for all the people. Nathan, come on. Are you really quabbling with that? Yes. You'll see. It's a significant difference. And also, notice, look in verse 14. It says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Now, the King James Version, which some of us may have grown up, you might be more familiar with goodwill towards men. Well, that reflection, uh, among those with whom He is pleased, that is a much more faithful translation of the original language. In fact, the, the, the text actually says, of, whom God, of the men of whom God has delight in. It's a particular people, in other words. It's a particular people that God has pleasure in. These, this Jesus is coming to the earth... And the angels are singing because God is coming to get a particular people. 
And now we may not remember those verses in that way because maybe we're familiar with Hallmark and sort of coming the peace on earth thing, which is actually not in the text. It's among those with whom he is pleased. And that misses an important piece of the puzzle. See, the angel is announcing good news of great joy to all the people. In other words, friends, it's to the nations. God is not a tribalistic God. God is not coming to save one nation. He's coming to save the nations. And the peace on earth doesn't go to everyone on earth, but only those of whom He is pleased. Now, that may seem like an insignificant detail, friend, but it's not. It explains why there is currently not peace on the whole earth after Jesus has come. In particular, it explains why there is not peace in Syria right now, even though that's where he was coming into in that region. And it does explain why there is peace on earth for a particular people in the world. For that precious group, those are the ones that are defined by God's pleasure. One of the things you're going to see as we move through Luke, you're going to see that Jesus is fully aware when he comes. He's fully aware that there's two people in the world. There are those that love him, that follow him, that trust him. And there are those that don't. He's fully aware of that throughout his entire ministry. God, we see here in this passage, when Jesus comes into the earth, has pleasure in a particular group of people that are among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, God sent Jesus to get them, to save them from their sin. And because God has pleasure in them and saves them in Jesus, they then have peace with God among the nations. And this, of course, gives glory, verse 14, gives glory to God. Isn't it good to know that the glory that God is due is not at odds with the peace that we can have? Back to that question of who... This Jesus, this Savior was coming for. Jesus, friends, was not on a rescue mission to only save one group of people within one nation. No. Nor was Jesus sent to die for some nameless mass of humanity that he didn't know or wasn't sure of. In other words, guys, Jesus coming into the world was not some risky rescue operation. This was not risky for God. God did not send Jesus into the world, have him to live a sinless life, die a sinner's death on the cross, and then go... I hope some people respond. It's not what happened. No, this was a mission of confident joy. God knew He was going on a rescue mission and He knew it would be accomplished for them. God was getting glory by coming to rescue the people of whom the Father already had pleasure in. He knew what He was doing and He knew whom He was going to rescue. Look there in verse 11. For unto you is born a Savior. Who's the you? Well, it was the shepherds, yes, but it's a savior for all of the people, all the nations wherein God's pleasure is resting. Jesus was coming, that is, to get his people. You heard Joey talk about this last week in Zechariah's song, that finished, completed redemption. And so do you see why this is so important to understand? Do you see why this helps contribute to our greatest joy? Do you see why this solidifies the peace that we can have on earth? God in sending His Son was not offering a generic gift to the, genation, to the nations, sticking it under, under the Christmas tree and just hoping somebody will take it. No. He knew what you and I needed and He sent His Son from heaven and He birthed it through a virgin in Bethlehem and He placed it in a feeding trough, listen, with your name on it. Do you see how that contributes to the greatest of joy? 
For you He was born. For you. This is not some generic... You ever, ever go to a party and there's like those gifts, you know, like a platter, they got all these sort of generic... Whoever comes, you can take one. I mean, those are nice, right? But those are different when there is a gift with your name on it. It's specifically for you. That's what Jesus has done. He knows whom He was purchasing. Your name was upon His lips on that day. This contributes to the increase of our joy. God has done in the saving of what God has done in the saving of Christ, uh, in Christ coming to save us, what he has done is purchased our specific joy by giving us specific peace to our specific lives. And so if you believe that Jesus is the joy of life because you have new life, then he's your savior. He came to get you and he knew that. Take joy in that. The Bible says that God knows the numbers of stars in the sky and he knows every star by name. Do you not think he knows your name? Do you not think that he knows he knows the number of hairs on your head? He's losing count with mine, so down they go. But he loves me. He knows me. He loves me. He knows my name. He knows Nathan Knight. This is astounding. This great gift, beloved, had your name on it. He was born to get you. To bring you home. God did not send people just simply into the world, sort of generically. He loved you. He took pleasure in you. We read it at the beginning of the service, Ephesians 1 4. When? From before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus showed up to get those people that were his and bring them home confidently. Good news of great joy. Now, listen, when I say that, I realize a couple questions come into some of your minds. First off, one, some of you may be asking, how can I become one of whom God is pleased? Kind of already answered that, but we can get after that a little bit more. But a second question that some of you may be asking is, how could God have pleasure in me? If you're telling me, Nathan, that the angels said peace on the earth among those with whom God is pleased, there's no way. I'm a failure. There's no way that God can have pleasure in me. If you're asking one of those two questions, let me encourage you to listen closely. If you're sort of fading off, come back in. You'll want to hear this. When Jesus grew up, He went to be baptized. And when He came up out of those waters, do you know what God the Father said to God the Son? Mark 1.11 You are My Son. With you, I am well pleased. Same language. With you, I have pleasure in you. Now, some of you say, yeah, yeah, Nathan, I know that. I know that God has pleasure in, you know, in, in, in Jesus, but not me. Yes, in you. What if I told you that it was possible to take the record of the status of Jesus and credit it to your life? Wouldn't that be beautiful if that could happen? What if I told you that it was possible to take the sonship of Christ and credit it to your life? What if Jesus' life could be your life? What if God's pleasure in his son could be the same as God's pleasure in you? If God were able to do that, if God could take all that Jesus was and put it on you, if God could take off your dirty, messy, sort of sinful jacket that all of us have, take that off and put on the beautiful, pristine garments of Christ and put that on you. If God could do that, and not only do that, but do that knowing He was putting it on on you specifically, if He could do that, that would be amazing. That would be great joy. Friends, that's exactly what the gospel is. That's what Jesus came to do. 
That's why the angels are singing, because they know this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to substitute his perfect life for imperfect lives like mine and like yours. He knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus lived that sinless life and died that sinner's death on the cross to purchase. He said, I came to offer my ransom for many. He came to pay the purchase price for our sin, even though he did nothing wrong. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we sinners might become what? The righteousness of God. Have the pleasure of God in us. And we know that sacrifice is received by the resurrection. Listen to this, Titus 3, 4 and 5. I don't know if you've ever thought of this as a Christmas verse. Listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. There it is, incarnation. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He, listen to that, just frame that, He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us. Not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Do you see why the angels are so excited? Do you see why the angels are singing? Do you see why Christians can be so full of great Joy no matter the circumstance. Because God looks down on the mess of our lives. And He knew that we could never clean ourselves up. And so He sent His Son to do it for us. To give us His record. His sonship. To secure for us peace. Joy. As His beloved sons and daughters. That He knows and loves. From before the foundation of the world. And having done that, then as a result, we can have that peace. And so for you that may think that God could never be pleased with you or for you that have been trying to please God by all of your religious deeds and you've never found peace on earth. Listen, you need to know that God can be pleased with you and he has already provided all that you need in Jesus. Brought it all there. Go to him in prayer. Ask him to forgive you. Be changed by the power of his love and learn to live in this gospel of great joy. And listen, if you do that, beloved, if you do that, friend, if you turn from sin, trust in Jesus, hope in him, nothing in yourself, you trust him. Here's what will happen. You will have peace on earth, a peace, the Bible says, that transcends all understanding because you will sense the pleasure of God in you. Because Christ and his righteousness, his love, his joy is in you. And that's why Christians can have peace no matter what may come. So no matter what our boss says to us, no matter what our teacher says to us, no matter what our family member or a spouse might say to us, no matter what we might do, if we are in Christ, then we can be confident that we have the pleasure of God living in us because Christ lives in us. He sent his son to rescue us and make us and make us secure as his. And so, guys, that's why we show up every week to rehearse this good news, because we forget it all the time. We keep looking for good news everywhere else. And we have to come back here every seven days. Aren't you glad God made a seven-day week and not a 22-day week? Right? It'd be, we'd, be, we'd be rough. We have two, like, ten community groups going all the time just to remind ourselves of this gospel, right? God has pleasure in us because Christ is in us that believe. We were come here and we rehearse this great joy to yourself. And so if you want to know that joy, come talk to me after the service. If you want to know the pleasure of God in you, no matter what you have done, repent, believe, follow Him, and take Joy in Him, your Savior. But let's ask that last and final question. What does this joy look like? We've said that the joy is Christ. We've said those of whom He came for is His people. The ones that are repenting, believing, treasuring Him. 
But what does it look like to have this joy? That's the final question that we'll give. I'm going to give you five examples. Now, good preaching, guys, is when the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. So I've done that, I think. Uh, so the elders can come and correct me later. You can come and correct me later. But now what we're going to do, I'm just going to make some observations of how people respond to this gospel. And then maybe make some observations as to how this could look like, what this would look like in our life. What does this great joy look like? Look in verse 8. We can look at the shepherds. We see again, what they're, they're probably out in those you know, pastures. and They're maybe again laying down, sleeping, singing songs around a fire, stargazing. The night is ringing with sheep calls and crickets. The moon shines dimly on the plains when that angel of the Lord breaks in. And what seems to be happening in this moment is that the Lord is peeling back the veil of the earth for just a minute. And we are looking into the throne room of heaven. And what was just a lonely field of sheep suddenly becomes a great musical hall, full of light and the splendor of God. The shepherds are understandably, verse 9, full of fear. And the angel, the great heavenly actor, steps out on the stage and utters what must have been welcome words. Fear not. And there we find the first thing that it means to live in the joy of Christ. We don't have to fear the presence of God. We have to fear the presence of God. We do not have to fear the glory of God because the peace of God has been brought to us in Christ. A day is coming, friends, when Christ will return, but this time He came to get His people. This next time He will come to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, we will not have to fear because Christ has made us His own. He has purchased us by His blood. We will be filled with shock and awe, but those of us that are in Christ will not have to be fearful of God, being in the presence of God because of the blood, pristine blood of Christ. He's made peace with us. So if you have been uh, struck by the glory of Christ on the day that He returns, you can know that you will be full of gladness. The splendor of His glory as it appears. The great joy of Jesus is that in Him God has made peace with those who believe. And so we can be sure that when He comes again, we will not have to fear. It will be said to us, fear not. Because we have been made clean in Christ. But after this announcement of the birth of Christ, the angel gives the shepherds some directions so they will then know where which little boy to go and look for in the city of Bethlehem. He's the one wrapped in swaddling cloths laying in a manger. My guess is probably not many of those in Bethlehem that night. But right about then, just as soon as they give those directions, the angels couldn't help but what do? Do what? But sing. Sing about this glorious new glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I said it wrong there. Did you hear it? Did y'all catch that? Among those with whom he is pleased. See, I, I even flipped up. I didn't mean to do that, by the way. Peace among whom he is pleased. They sing. And that's the second thing that we learn of what it means to be living in the joy of Christ. We sing. We sing. We're going to do it in a moment. We're going to sing two songs that you ascribe to Christmas. And they are in Christmas time. But nevertheless, pay attention to those words. We're singing about the joy of the fact that Christ comes. Living in the joy of Christ means you sing about Jesus. The glory of God or the peace that we have. It's the second thing we, mean, we see. But just as, we, just as soon as those angels had come and sung, they were gone. And there they were sitting again. Can you imagine what that was like? They're gone. It's sort of quiet again. Sitting again in the still of the night. The sheep maybe had fled at the glory of the Lord, but the shepherds, they didn't care. These guys are excited. And they say in verse 15, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing. Notice the words in verse 16, 
Verse 15, which the Lord has made known to us. They understood this was the word of God. Verse 16 says, they then went with haste. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Remember, Mary does that back in chapter 1, verse 39. She hears the word of the Lord, and then she makes haste to go see its answer. So what seems to have happened was, after the angels disappear, the shepherds say, come on, we got to go. Let's go see this thing in Bethlehem. The Greek sounds as though these guys are on a dead sprint to Bethlehem. Now we can imagine, imagine us being residents of Bethlehem in that town. Imagine us being in there and then just these, what a two, four, ten, or twelve guys just come bolting into the city. And they're looking in all these places where mangers might be. And we're going, what are you doing? Like, what, what's going on? And they say back to you, just had angels talk, Christ the Lord, he's here, he's in this city somewhere, lying in a manger. You're excited. They look around. They finally come to the place wherein they find Jesus lying in a manger. We can imagine if I'm Joseph, I'm getting up going, whoa, whoa. I'm standing in between my wife or my soon to be wife and Jesus, the savior. I'm going, who are you guys? What are you doing? And then the shepherds say back to them, listen, the glory of the Lord came. We know who that is. We know who it is. And Joseph then maybe lets them come to the manger. And what do they do? (sighs) Huffing and puffing. Sweat rolling down their faces. They gaze into the face of Christ. And that's the third thing that we see. That it means to live in the joy of Jesus. You run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. See Him. Savor Him. Love Him. Run to Jesus. We hear His words. We hear the Word of God. And we run to Jesus. You should hear in preaching, right? When you hear good preaching, you hear people speak the word and we, the pastor should run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And so are you running to Jesus, beloved? Are you? Are you running to Jesus? Are you experiencing pain, frustration, doubt, disappointment? Run to Jesus. Are you experiencing relief, healing, gladness, good news? Hear the word of the Lord and run to Jesus. And so for us, that means we run to Jesus in prayer. We don't keep ourselves from Jesus. We respond to the word and to the world as it comes at us in the same way these shepherds do. In haste, we run to Jesus. He tells us, Jesus says, cast all your cares upon me. Run to Him. Cast them on Him. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is our center. He is our world. He is our joy. He is our peace. And so day after day, beloved, do not fear in the presence of the Lord. Sing about the greatness of His glory and run to Him in prayer. This is one of the reasons Jesus came. So that you could go to Him in prayer. To allow you to run to Him and be heard. That's what it means to run to Jesus. And the fourth thing it means to run, the fourth thing that it means to live in the joy of Jesus is we tell others about the joy of Jesus. We tell others. That's what we see here. Look in verse 17. When the shepherds saw Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Again, that's the strange situation I told you. They tell him. They tell others about this Jesus, what they have heard. They tell others about the word. They tell them about Jesus. They tell Mary and Joseph. They say, angels came. We saw the glory of the Lord. He's here. The Lord is here. Look at verse 18. All who heard what they said wondered at what the shepherds told them. When you receive the good news of great joy, what do you do? If you receive other news of great joy, what do you do? You tell others, right? Isn't that what you do? That's what I do. 
You tell others about joy. And if, and if you're so full of that joy, what do you want to do in telling them that joy? What are you trying to do? You want them to enter into that joy too. You're trying to get them to come into it. You're speaking it to them so that they can come in to the joy. And so by these shepherds telling Mary and Joseph what had happened, they bring Mary and Joseph into their joy. And surely, surely Mary and Joseph told them their stories. And they delighted in the joy of Christ. What they are doing is inviting others to, into the joy of Jesus. And that's what evangelism is. Inviting others into the joy of Christ. And the hope that we have Him. The good news of great joy. That's what you're doing. In and through Christ, He's bringing peace by His death and resurrection. He's made a way for sinners in this crazy world that is so chaotic and hard to find peace. Speak it to others and call them into that joy. And so we don't fear We sing, we run to Jesus in prayer, we tell others, and finally, verse 19, we treasure Jesus. And we ponder up these things. Not just in our minds. What does it say? Verse 19, in our hearts. In our hearts. We treasure, we ponder the coming of Christ. The peace of Christ, the joy of Christ. In our hearts. That's what Mary did. That's what all those in Christ do. Again, in verse 18, we see that all those that heard about Jesus, they wondered. They wondered. When's the last time you wondered? Not wondered like, is it going to rain? But like wondered in the sense that like, this is big. This is beautiful. This is amazing. I don't have words to describe this. For those that live in the joy of Christ, we treasure, we ponder, we wonder about the joy of Christ in our hearts. I mean, I just can't help but wonder, how long did those shepherds talk about what they'd experienced that light, that night? Do you think they even went to sleep? I don't think they did. Just staying up all night, just rehearsing what had happened. How many times did they think about that night years later? How did their worship and enjoyment of the Lord change as a result of that night? As they considered it. Not just because they experienced it, hear me, Not just because they experienced it, but because they wondered at what happened. They treasured, they pondered these things in their hearts. Just as Mary did. See friends, I realize you may be tempted to say that in order for me to enter into the joy of Jesus, you may be thinking, I have to enter into the experience of the shepherds or the experience of Mary. But friend, you need to know that is not the case. The very same Spirit that attended those individuals on that night is available to every single one of us today. The very same truths that impacted them can impact you in the very same way. How? By your wondering. By your pondering. By your treasuring the joy of Jesus to come and rescue His people. Hear me. We don't need to personally experience the events of the Bible in order to have the joy of Christ. No, we need to personally experience the truths of the Bible in order to have the joy of Christ. And that comes by our pondering them, treasuring them, wondering at them. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something we ever graduate from, guys. We only move deeper into it. And so the certainty that Luke wants Theophilus to have is not found merely in intellectually rehearsing the facts of Jesus' coming. The certainty that Luke wants for Theophilus, the the certainty that I as your pastor want for you, for us as a church, comes by knowing and treasuring those facts. See, I used to think, I thought this when I went to seminary, 
I showed up and all these guys with all these degrees spouting off all this information. I used to think these are some of the most godly men in the history of the world. And I found quickly that wasn't the case. It is not the people that found that have the most Bible facts, that are really good at Bible trivia. They are oftentimes not the most ones that are most full of weight and wonder. It's the ones that treasure those facts. They ponder them, that love them. Their imaginations are laden with the complexities of the excellencies of Christ. They not only read, but they meditate on His Word. And they delight in it day and night. And as a result, their lives are weighty. Their lives are meaningful. Their lives are joyful. Their lives are peaceful. Friends, the hard reality of verses 18 and 19 is this. The joy of Christ doesn't come on the quick and the easy. It doesn't come in the busy and in the hurried. Let's just, can we just be honest? All of us in this room, probably most of us in this room, I'm one of these, we suffer from hurry sickness. Far too many of us have this hurry. We, and as a result, the joy of Christ is fleeting. We don't have time to run to Jesus because we are too busy running everywhere else. Friend, you cannot write poetry on the run. Poetry only comes in the quiet, still moments of reflection. And so, beloved, find ways to regularly get your soul still before the Lord. And listen, don't read something new. Ponder something old. Treasure it. Roll it around in your heart and your mind. Enjoy it. That He has come. And He will come again. Ponder, wonder, treasure up things of old. The reality that 2,000 years ago, God broke into the story to save us. And all of His promises were met in Christ. The One that came to give us peace. Because God the Father has pleasure in us because of His Son. And so, beloved, it is true. In the beginning... There was God forever happy and joyful in Himself. And because of the work of Christ and His coming, in the end, there will be a people that are forever joyful and happy in Himself too. And until that day comes, that we find ourselves joyfully singing with the angels, treasuring up, pondering these truths, anticipating the return of Christ, waiting for Him to come and have the consolation of His people and the restoration of His world for the glory of of His name. Let's pray. Glory to You, God. Glory to You. Thank You that Christ has come. Thank You that You have pleasure in us specifically. Thank You that You have made it possible for us to enjoy You through the work of Jesus. And so may we give ourselves to singing of You, of speaking about You, of treasuring You by pondering about what You've done. Going deep, reaching wide, that the glory of Christ would be spread amongst all the nations in Syria, in Washington, D.C., and around the world. You are worthy of it, God. And Jesus, You have secured it by Your redemption. We rejoice. What joy that we give ourselves to it. We ask this for your name and your glory. Thank you for peace. We pray in Jesus' name.